Welcome to the very first episode of Green and Gritty. We are four master's students <laughs> trying to make environmental education a little bit more accessible. We are so excited that you joined us today in our little corner of the internet. Here's a little lineup what we're starting with today. The first topic is greenwashing greed will be explained with what greenwashing is, what it looks like in today's society, and how you can prevent yourself from buying into the scam. Next up is individuals versus climate change, so which is where we'll talk about where climate solution and blame is placed and whether that is correct. Next will be gatekeeping and being green. This segment will discuss the issues of classism, ableism, and racism in the environmentalist movement, all aspects of it. So, like, how can we even stop gatekeeping of being green and becoming more inclusive? And why are we even like this to begin with? And then lastly, the recycling breakdown. This segment will give a brief history of recycling in Ontario, give an overview of the waste hierarchy, and ponder what the future of recycling can become. So get comfy, get your water, get your snacks, get your notepad and pencils, because this is going to be a fun episode. Hello everyone, this is Taylor S. here, and I'll be tackling the first segment of today's episode on greenwashing. So let's get started. So for those of you who are just entering into the green and sustainability world, first of all, welcome. And second, there's one thing you really have to keep an eye out for in today's world of advertising, which is greenwashing. Greenwashing is basically when companies invest more time and more money on their marketing for their products or their brand as green rather than actually doing the hard work to ensure that it's sustainable. If you want to get technical, Cambridge Dictionary says that greenwashing is designed to, quote, make people believe that your company is doing more to protect the environment than it really is. So, essentially, it's a scam. And it's a pretty dangerous one. It's dangerous because sometimes greenwashing is unintentional. It could just be the result of a lack of knowledge on the topic of sustainability and it could easily be solved by a quick Google search. But the main issue with all cases of greenwashing is that it doesn't help advance sustainability or circular economy initiatives like it implies it does, which makes it super misleading to consumers. And because of this, environmental issues don't get any better. And consumers who actually care about sustainability and want to support green companies are directed down the wrong path. And what sucks about this is that there's there's no laws or regulations surrounding greenwashing. Like, it's totally legal and allowable, and so it's really just up to the consumer to do the research on the products that they're buying. Which, I mean, could be pretty hard for some people to do, especially if they're not too familiar with sustainability. It can be, it can be quite tough to navigate these types of situations. But before I get into how to spot it and stop greenwashing, I want to give a couple of examples that I think will really emphasize how dangerous greenwashing can be to sustainable development. So I think some pretty common examples of greenwashing are hidden all around us in our daily life, like a bag of chips that has all natural written on it when it's really super unhealthy and not exactly sustainable, or products that use colors of brown and green and blues just to portray like a healthier or sustainable brand that can be pretty misleading to the average consumer. But in a more extreme case, there was this whole issue with Volkswagen so many years ago. Um, I don't know if you guys know about this or have heard about it. I think Taylor and I have talked about mm -hmm. it before in one of our classes. Um, but I haven't heard. No. Okay, so for those who don't know, um, it was back in the 70s, I think. Volkswagen was involved in a pretty bad greenwashing scandal because they were using something called defeat devices in their vehicles to make the overall performance seem better when the vehicle was being tested. 
And what Volkswagen's devices were designed to do was detect when the car was undergoing an emissions test. So the device would alter the performance in order to reduce the emissions level and therefore pass the emissions test, even though their vehicles at Oh, at the time at least, they were emitting up to 40 times the amount allowed limit for nitrogen oxide pollutants. So moral of the story Holy is crap. that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like very, very big scam here. So yeah, moral that's of the story, <laughs> yeah, no, 40 so- times. Sorry, that didn't sink in. Just <laughs> oh, wait, hold up. Okay, keep. I'm sorry, keep going. No, it's a lot to take in, I know. But, (laughs) like, at the end of the day, Volkswagen was just boasting about their low emissions features of their vehicles and their marketing campaigns and all their advertisements. But in actuality, their vehicles were just horrible for emissions. But because of the devices they installed, they could show, quote unquote, results of low emissions in their testing processes. I just had a thought. Okay, I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. That's the whole point of this. So I'm assuming... (laughs) <laughs> I'm assuming Volkswagen was caught, and that's how this came out. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how much data is inaccurate because of other companies um, or other emission emission producing vehicles that like have been using. Um, sorry, you said they were called defeat devices. Yeah. Um, and like our actual emission estimates are just inaccurate because of that. Right. Well, there that's there a were a lot point. of other auto companies that were using similar devices not so much to the extreme that Volkswagen was but it was doing like the sort of quote-unquote scamming along the same lines of these Volkswagen's devices. I'm pretty sure that even though this happened in the 70s that this something similar happened like in the 2010s. I was just about to say that I was just about to say that because what Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of is more an individual thing rather than a company-wide thing is that you hear all the time about how people somehow fake their e-test mm-hmm. in order to get their vehicle on the road because they know it's not going to pass and they don't want a new vehicle or they really love their vehicle whatever the situation is i hear about this all the time and that's exactly. just on an individual level so if individuals can get away with it you know what i, I don't know I, you wonder like how far this really goes yeah, yeah. absolutely okay, all the way all the way to the top 2020 <laughs> so i just uh there's an i just looked it up as you were talking is defeat device like i i googled Recent car emission defeat devices, and the first article that I see is by BBC, um, by Theo Leggett, and it says, lawsuit alleges defeat devices in Nissan petrol cars, and it says up to 1.4 million Renault and Re- Nissan vehicles sold in Britain could be equipped with illegal defeat devices, according to a lawsuit being launched today. That's June 23rd, 2020. Holy, that's insane. Yep. It's not unheard of. Like, it's these companies have a lot of money. Yeah. They can get away with a lot of things. Right. right. It's still alleged, I guess. I don't know if that's technically alleged, because apparently both companies are denying the claims, but it's being brought up. So it's still a very much recent issue, and your example is from this. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so stressed. And the <laughs> kicker, the icing on the cake of this whole Volkswagen mm-hmm. thing, was that there was a suit brought against them for this defeat devices and mm-hmm. i think they only they got out of it like i think it was the state versus Volkswagen. so I, I could be wrong but um all they got was like a hundred and twenty thousand dollar fine mm-hmm. and that was it they were just ready to go back on the way well that's the thing like when these companies get away with all these sketchy business ideas and all they, they have is a fine it. it's like oh exactly. that's just part of doing business this is a slap on the wrist there's mm-hmm. no real repercussions being taken so that lessons mm-hmm. are learned to stop 
clearly making negative impact and negative yeah. products. I also feel like, like it's not even just like, oh, it's like a slap on the wrist. They're like, oh, um, the cost of $120,000 exactly. is yeah, fine. Yeah. It's still cheaper. So in the end, I'm going to choose that. So I think that's really how they yeah. see it more yeah. than, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's, it's all business and it, oh my gosh, I can't even believe it. It's all <laughs> just getting the lowest cost, most profit. Like, right. that's yep. capitalism. So <laughs> yeah. So now that we know what it kind of is, there's, there's a couple ways that we can really look into greenwashing um, to truly identify what it is and where it's happening. Because um, it's definitely an issue that needs to be kind of mitigated, at least for now. But the answer to how do we stop it and how do we spot it is very much rooted in consumer behavior, meaning that if you support a product or a brand that is not genuinely sustainable, then they're winning and they will keep doing what they're doing, like we have just said before. It's not going to stop. So at the individual level, you as a consumer have to have to have to do your research on the products that you're buying and the brands that you're supporting. And there's a couple of easy ways you can do this. Um, First, you can just bypass the packaging and read the label itself, meaning just read what's actually in the product instead of looking at just the images they put on the packaging because there's really no regulations on what photos and and slogans companies can use on their products. This also includes, like, as crazy as it sounds, the colors that are being used in advertising and packaging because it's been shown that companies have started to use more greens and browns and blues and avoiding bright and flashy and unnatural colors because the health-conscious consumer typically responds better to that. Um, You can also look for proof of green practices. So basically just look for proof that your products are healthy. Products that are actually healthier and more sustainable will definitely highlight their certifications. uh, So it it really shouldn't be hard to find. But some certifications you can trust are the USDA organic certification. Um, Green Seal is a really good one for standards. And the non-GMO project verified is also good because... Getting that certification requires absolutely zero GMOs, like right down to the cow, the plants, the seeds, everything. So that is probably one of the best ones to look for on your on your products. Um, and also, not to discourage you even further, but there are some eco labels that are very, very suspect. But if you don't see one that you recognize, you can actually look it up on this website we found. It's called the Eco Label Index. They don't have an app yet, but it's a super easy website to navigate online. Um, and it's essentially just a global directory of different eco labels around the world. And it provides information on which company or which group is behind each certification. And it basically tells you whether or not that eco label is legit and whether it's doing what it says it does. I so, like could that. you almost relate? there's almost like a life cycle analysis if they're like the one that you said goes all the way to the cow or no you probably could that's kind of cool and it also would definitely fun. be worth looking into mm-hmm. it would be interesting to see how they're doing it like step by step by step to see if it's similar right. to a life cycle analysis because i know life cycle analysis like it depends on who's doing it and what they're looking for and what they're testing but it's interesting to see like the impact in every single like key touch point of yeah. that product's life mm-hmm. cycle that's a good point just for just for those who might not be aware do you want to just give a quick description as to what a life cycle analysis is yeah so a life cycle analysis is when you have a product or service and you are trying to examine the impact it has throughout its entire life so from the creation and production of 
that so let's go with product uh so that creation of that product through the transporting of shipping it to get where it's going to be selling in retail um to to then being taken uh and bought by the consumer back to their house and then how they dispose of that however material uh, indicates it should be disposed of and then how it's then transported from disposal from like your recycling example and then to the recycling facility and then to um breaking down those materials and then putting it back into like we're going to reuse these materials because we're recycling it and all that material every single touch point that like something happens something changes within that like chain of events that's measured and impacted within a life cycle analysis and then you're able to see the true um impact that it's having so you can look specifically at like carbon emission if that's what you're looking for it can really test anything it's kind of cool that's a really you did a really good job explaining that thank you (laughs) I loved it. I think life cycle analysis are really interesting, but they take a lot of time and resources to do. Mm-hmm. So it's that's why like it's tricky and like um what the motive is for what you're trying to find out, which is just like uh which is like any kind of study that you have to look out for. But I also fun fact want to bring it into my thesis, so we'll see <laughs> in a year. <laughs> so stay tuned yeah. for further research. Stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned for some publications, eh? Uh, I hope so. I mean, it will happen, but it, yeah, I still hope so. So actually, Taylor, the other point I want to comment on is what you were talking about, the packaging and the advertising design decisions, which I think is really cool because there was, um, it's cool because eh, it's a little sketchy, but it's cool because it's a fine line. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but anyways, in undergrad, we had a conversation about these types of things because we were doing a project where we had to design um like food packaging and then it had to be like green sustainable all the works and everyone naturally went to like the natural earthy tones and like the greens and then one of my professors is like hey guys have your attention up here fun fact green actually is one of the most unsustainable colors to print with and i think it's how it's um broken down when you're like taking apart the materials at the end when the product is no longer being used and then to recycle reuse etc so i thought that was pretty fun because it's used everywhere in green washing and <laughs> green marketing <laughs> but yet it's at the time anyway of this lecture around third year in university that's what they told us and i was like oh that's pretty interesting and then the other interesting thing is like how many more mixed materials are being used to show like a sustainable product like either the way it feels or if you have like a paper board and a plastic window to see it so you can see the health to see like oh the, the food's good therefore the recyc- the material of the paper is good because you can recycle it whatever it right. may be therefore the company they're sustainable and those like jumps can happen because when you come into like a retail or a superstore to see you only have like few like three max seconds to like really see because you see colors and then you go okay that's what i'm that's what i'm looking for i'm gonna get it because it checks off all these boxes we're just like trained over the years uh to recognize with marketing that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool um i think we that's a great um opportunity to move to individuals versus capitalism Mm -hmm. or versus climate change um because we're going to talk about a lot of consumerism and our waste and all that kind of stuff are we good to good to keep trekking totally agree okie dokie okay (laughs) So I'm going to start this off with a super, um, I don't know, I find it upsetting, but COVID times, everything's upsetting, am I right? Um, So do y'all remember, maybe, okay, so I remember 
um, I was talking to my brother a while back and we were talking about the concept of, of carbon footprint. And then actually, yes. I believe it was Chicks for Climate, which is an Instagram page about like the intersection between environmentalism and venom- feminism. They have a bunch of really fun educational posts. They also brought up the um, the establishment of the, the concept of a carbon footprint. So I want to talk about that. So um, Basically, if y'all remember um, the oil company uh, BP, British Petroleum, mm-hmm. um, famously known for the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, the BP oil spill. Um, just, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, where yeah. we're starting. That's yeah. where we're starting. <laughs> that's a pesky starting point. Oh, it's that BP, right. not Boston Pizza, that actually <laughs> sorry, coined the term carbon footprint in 2004. Now, BP is coincidentally the world's sixth largest polluter. Just coincidentally. um, Coincidentally. (laughs) Yeah. um, And they were like, hey, y'all, we need to be tracking our carbon footprint. Except they weren't saying, like, we need to be. They were saying, you need to be tracking. So basically, then the carbon footprint calculator was established. And it was basically a tool that individuals could use to track their own actions and how they contributed to the heating of the planet. Um, This in itself was the ultimate um, deflective tactic. Um, to further um, stress how just ridiculous this is, so in COVID, so in COVID, is that the right way to say During our COVID times that we exist in. <laughs> during COVID times, um, yeah. yeah. when supposedly all of us are indoors and we're reducing our carbon footprints, um, overall emissions have actually only dropped approximately 8%. So... Shocking. Something's not adding up. No. Because if if we're doing what we're doing, but emissions only dropped 8%, like, something's not right here. That's what we're going to talk about. I don't want to interrupt you. I don't mean to be rude. No, do it. Interrupt me. This is what relates exactly back to what I was saying in the previous episode, where it it is just proof that this, all of our emissions pollution is large companies. Because they didn't stop. They didn't stop during the pandemic. We did. Mm -hmm. And that's how, like, as, as much as we want to believe that individuals and can can make you know a significant difference collectively maybe a small difference but it's it's not it's not huge like Kendra said it's been eight percent an eight percent decrease Mm -hmm. in what like six seven months is really (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. I don't and to be but fair, also, I don't know when the eight percent was calculated. I don't have a date if that was like last week, so I don't know if it was a full, yeah. full like six or seven months. If it was three months, regardless, that's still not a huge number. No. Um. Sorry, Taylor, you're gonna say something. Oh no, I was just but it, say that. Oh, what's Taylor? <laughs> I know this is. So <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> Taylor, you go. No, I was just gonna reiterate that like it just is really hard, solid proof that it's yeah. more so on the large bodies than it is on the individuals. Yeah. But I just yeah. wanted to say that it'd be interesting to see um, what, like, big companies did slow down or stop and what ones didn't. Because I know that in the beginning, when all the quarantine restrictions really started around the world, a lot of panic buying happened. So I wonder if we also had to increase production on different materials, and that also didn't really help slow down emissions, too. But also, mm-hmm. it doesn't... You know, and it doesn't take away that the number is so small because um, the reaction of not using traditional, like, emission outputting items isn't really the same everywhere. Like, not everyone's quarantining. Not everyone's, like, isolating Mm -hmm. and staying home. But um, 
So that could also maybe have a difference too. Maybe. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see like just worth that 8% point. and then the other 92% would have been made it out of. So, no, 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 no. That's a good point. Um, so I'm just going to go into it. Um, so basically yeah. for today, like what I want to talk about um, in this next section is about as much as we are going to be talking about capitalism and a lot of the blame on larger corporations and their emission production i do want to acknowledge that a lot of that is because it serves consumerism so it does it does serve consumers demand what i want to stress in this next segment my disclaimer is um i acknowledge it's consumer demand however responsibility should be for large corporations to be um is it have regulations that like limit um the allowance like emission allowance that is so we're gonna go into it now but that's just my disclaimer trust i do acknowledge the importance of consumer <laughs> demand so here we go we're gonna add a little bit of political theory we're gonna get a little philosophical up in here and it's gonna be great it's gonna be so fun um so it's gonna be great and you're gonna comment- love it <laughs> it's gonna have it's gonna have a good time and i promise <laughs> if you're not ex- highlighting very aggressively right now in your notebooks i don't know what's wrong <laughs> You're going to need at least two different colored pens to emphasize points. A black okay. pen, a blue pen, an orange highlighter, yellow highlighter. Let's go. Sorry. And don't forget the red one to underline. Um, so a common discussion that I hear brought up in like our classrooms and even discussion between like a few of us have had this conversation is this um, concept that's um, kind of like a buzz phrase that's been floating around on social media as well is the phrase sustainable initiatives are only as successful as the institutions that they operate or exist in. So this refers to the concept that you or someone else could choose to make a sustainable decision. However, if further down the road, these decisions are undermined in like any capacity, then arguably the effect is null. So the intent was there. However, the result isn't. Um, An example of this would be a meme that was going around a few months ago, actually a few months ago, it was probably a year ago, where there was in a cafeteria, a like a waste or a disposal bin where you could sort your um, waste and your recyclables. Um, However, when you lifted the lid of this like container, um, it looked like everything was separated in those two holes, the waste and the recyclable. Mm -hmm. But when you lift the lid, it was just one bag. So everyone in the cafeteria could have made the like intent to properly dispose of their waste however the result is like nothing is all in one bag it didn't do anything mm-hmm. so okay i this isn't to, i do want to emphasize again this is not to say that individual based eco decisions are pointless just hear me out because it's so much deeper than that and we need to we need to we need to talk about it okay so the main problem of individual versus climate change becomes much larger when you think about where climate solution pressures are placed. That's the key. So I think things are changing now as information just genuinely generally becomes more accessible. Um, and I have a lot of hope for our like the younger generation, like teenagers these days. I love how like active they are like TikTok. If when you get to like the sustainability side of TikTok, when you get to any... It's just, it's really encouraging to Mm -hmm. see how like teenagers are aware and they have access to information and they can make better choices for themselves and for our planet because they have, I'm really happy and it's great to see. I was also reflecting on how like when I was growing up, I was taught the mentality that, oh my God, the world is burning and animals are dying because I drove to school today when I could have walked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was I 
by driving to school, contributing to carbon emissions, and to a degree, however small, like harming the planet with that action? Yes, 100%. That's undeniable. However, (laughs) now I stop to think about why is so much pressure is placed on individuals to make eco-conscious choices when capitalistic and consumer-based societies make upholding these decisions extremely difficult? Um, I th- I'm like I I know Danielle is going to discuss um, in this episode how a lot of eco-conscious choices actually cater towards particular um, economic demographics, um, as well as other additional barriers to eco-conscious decisions and choices. But for now, I just want to break down. Um, some of the facts and stats about this topic as well as the more i guess political theory side of things so the ipcc which stands for the united nations intergovernmental panel on climate change um which i am like i'm sure we're all going to be citing a ton throughout this podcast because that's where you that's the go-to um, this is my holy grail i <laughs> am obsessed with the un and the ipcc so yeah yeah, it's an amazing, they release uh, wonderful reports giving you summaries and all of the facts that you need to know about climate change and its impacts. Um, if you're interested in reading a summary of the IPCC reports, because there's a bunch, check out the IPCC summary for policymakers. And that's a, it's a good morning read with your coffee if you want to start off a little dark. <laughs> um, so anyways, the IPCC released their fifth assessment report in 2014. And here are some things that were mentioned. So in general, um, higher consumption lifestyles have a greater environmental impact with the richest 10% of people emitting about half the total lifestyle emissions. So the facts are there. Um, 100% individual um, choices do have an impact in emissions and do have an impact on climate change. That's, again, like I'm not trying to diminish our responsibility as individuals. Um So the IPCC did uh, suggest a couple of lifestyle changes that are recommended to all regardless of um, country. So regardless of country emission or anything. And some include avoiding car use, uh, adopting plant-based diets, avoiding air travel, and reducing family sizes. That was a big one. So um, these are all examples of things that have been proven to greatly reduce one's personal greenhouse gas emissions. However, um, many have argued that these individual-based actions are not nearly as impactful as if large-scale actors, such uh, actions such as like carbon pricing initiatives or stricter regulations for fossil fuel corporations, were implemented. And to further emphasize this point, um, fossil fuel Uh, corporations are documented as responsible for 71% of carbon emissions since 1988. To redirect back to the topic at hand, so individuals versus climate change, a 2017 article in The Guardian called Neoliberalism Has Conned Us Into Fighting Climate Change as Individuals really summarizes this issue aptly. So just to give you a glimpse, uh, it says, while we were busying ourselves greening our personal lives, Fossil fuel corporations are rendering these efforts irrelevant. Um, The freedom of these corporations to pollute and the fixation on a feeble lifestyle response is no accident. It is the result of an ideological war waged over the last 40 years against the possibility of collective action. So essentially what this is talking about is while corporations have the freedom to pollute, um, individuals are pressured with trying to green our lifestyles in the hopes of balancing out these actions. However, as I'm sure our stats have shown you, um, this doesn't balance out. So... Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, I just want to feed into it since that's your political theory take on it, as you were going to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. That just the whole time you were reading that, all I was thinking was there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. That's the the term Mm -hmm. that was 
that was just the phrase that was going through my head the whole time you were tying that in. And I know that's like a Marxist point of view, but I just thought I would say that you were ringing a bell there with that. Sorry, you mm-hmm. can continue. <laughs> that that per- works so perfectly, Danielle, and I do firmly believe that. Um, but um, so some trademark policies involved in neoliberalist, neoliberalist ideology um, include privatization, deregulation, tax cuts and free trade deals um, that have liberated corporations to accumulate enormous profits and treat the atmosphere like a sewage dump. So that is the author's take on the situation. Um, so I think another key point to consider that was also discussed in some of these articles was that prior to the establishment of neoliberal ideology um, is that capitalist societies have really thrived on the concept of people believing that being impacted by structural problems such as poverty, joblessness, poor health, lack of fulfillment within what really could be considered an exploitative system um, are personal deficiencies. I like another example that I think this applies to is the whole concept of the American dream where like it, it was it was understood that if you wanted success or what society deemed as a success, you just had to work hard for it. And if you didn't obtain that, then it was assumed to be due to your lack of effort and not actually structural barriers that may have prohibited that level of what success was thought of. So it, it does often feel as though the pressure on individuals in terms of maintaining environmental integrity is like, oh, well, I didn't buy enough metal straws or enough beeswax wraps early on enough. And that's why we're in a climate crisis. But <laughs> that's it again it doesn't balance out that way um entirely misinformation as the episode <laughs> states <laughs> yeah um exactly um so it should also be noted that a lot of environmental harm can be hidden um that that's not really discussed too much um for example the minerals and metals needed for your cell phone your laptop or whatever you're listening to this on most likely were mined in a manner that posed harm. So whether it be on the communities where the mine resides or just on the basic principle that a lot of resource extraction is unsustainable, 100% our choices do have an impact. You can vote with your dollar and you can demand change. However, it's 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 really not enough for us to be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll keep this phone as long as possible and then dispose of it properly when the time comes. We should also... Um, address the roots of these issues and demand better practices from these corporations. Um, I know Danielle will go further on uh, to talk about like not everyone can afford electric vehicles and if public transportation is inadequate or if you live in a rural society, a, pers- a personal vehicle it could be a necessity to life. So some of these options that are recommended to us for personal reduction of emissions aren't even possible for some people. So while, yes, 100%, there are many ways individuals mm-hmm. can work towards obtaining environmental sustainability in our personal lives, we, we cannot ignore that structures sometimes, maybe all the time, limit our full potential. So um, I think the main... Yeah takeaway the main misinformation misrepresentation that I have from this is really that it cannot be individual versus climate change um I don't think it can be a versus discussion period it I don't mean to be sappy but it really should be all of us um showing up for our little planet and doing what it takes (laughs) to make sustainable change um but like I do firmly believe like individual action is not enough and it will never be enough so again, 100% vote with your dollars, support ethical and sustainable companies and initiatives. Um, but our structures do need to be reevaluated to assess if they actually permit real sustainable action at all. <laughs> no, that's, a- that's absolutely right. Like it's, 
been said time and time again that like efforts towards climate change have to be a collective action and mm-hmm. that is where we're going to start seeing results i mean we've come a little bit of a way in terms of progress to mit- mitigating and you know mm-hmm. um combating climate change but there's still a lot a lot more we have to do and a long ways to go so i think now that the collective is kind of realizing that that's what needs to be done i think it's going to start snowballing and and picking up but who knows let's let's hope Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i like what you said about the Mm -hmm. public transportation kendra because i know this is gonna feed into my part now which kind of works out because i'm next but i didn't realize so like i live in the suburbs i grew up in the suburbs and um i always wondered why like why isn't public transit available here like even if you like are privileged enough to have a car if you're not like why can I not like why can I use public transit to get around and as I develop more mm-hmm. into the urban planning I realized that the suburbs are literally built to prevent public transit they're built to be impermeable which is a quote from actually my advisor <laughs> she said the suburbs are literally built to be impermeable they're built to huh. be protected and this is all the way the developers have created it to be so how how do we fight that how do we fight something that's built in like that like you were saying so i i think that's a good point that's so interesting you said they're impermeable they're built to be protected and my first thought is protected from what exactly like, what are we i feel like it's it's a very big like wealth thing like even you could argue a race thing it's like built to protect from certain groups of people right and mm-hmm. i think that's that's another problem right the stigma around public transit the stigma like if you own a car it's already a different stigma right so I think that that's it's also a problem of how things are perceived and how things are played out to like what's good and what's bad. So um, that's kind of feeds really well into my segment, Kendra. If you're good or if you have anything, yeah, more go you for end take with. it away. No, <laughs> my segment is called the gatekeeping of being green, and I'm sure lots of people have heard this term gate gatekeeping. I feel like that's like a new buzzword, but I just wanted to define it super quickly. So when I Google it, this is what comes up. The activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something. So for in terms of this, it's being green, being sustainable, and how this works for certain groups of people. Kendra kind of gave a glimpse into what I wanted to talk about. So my main point from this is that there's a serious classes problem within the environmentalist movement. Um, there always has been, uh, not just classism, there's been... Um, a racist problem within this movement um, since it mm-hmm. began. Um, so this plays really well into Kendra's point about how individuals are generally blamed or have more pressure to take action. Um, and what I want to really just cover is what is this issue? How do we perpetuate it? And how can we prevent it from happening? So environmentalism excludes and blames those who are of lower socioeconomic status um specifically a lot of times people who can make individual change are oftentimes those who have more wealth and more resources um and more time so if you have more financial freedom that's usually when you have more time 
So Mm. we already have an issue just in how we can make those individual changes. And then we also tend to blame those who cannot make those changes. So I'm going to give another example. So this is more of like a media, how, how does the media see things? So we also hear of crises all the time, such as the California fires and the Australia wildfires. Rightfully so. These are terrible things that happen to our environment and hurt many, many people. But my issue is, how come we don't hear about the water crisis that happens, not happen, it's still continually happening in Flint, Michigan, right? Like, Mm -hmm. why do we not hear about how a lot of uh, Indigenous people in Canada on their own land are not given access to fresh water? They have inflated food prices. Like, why why is this something that's not discussed as much or trying to be solved as much, right? We see so many money thrown towards other causes, which I love. I think that's amazing. But I I don't really see the equality. And and it's oftentimes, it's certain groups that often benefit from um, being helped out. So And like certain groups benefit from just like sweeping us under the rug for us not mm-hmm. knowing unless we actively go out and search this not like this mm-hmm. information right you're you're exactly right because mm-hmm. if people don't really make that effort which is hard to do it's hard mm-hmm. to access certain types of information how are how are we supposed to know how are we supposed to make a change and I feel like we're in a really good climate right now where people being more aware of what's going on and people are sharing resources a lot more often, which is awesome. Um, And I think this podcast is like a great example of that because like this is a whole thing about making information accessible and having people just like us learn more about just about the idea. So I would say for my issue, I wanted to discuss how we can make a change. I think the number one thing is just being more aware. Us knowing Mm -hmm. and sharing information, I think makes a huge difference. We can see the power of our words just within the past few months with the Black Lives Matter movement and um, how changes can be made like that. And because we, like we said, not everyone has a dollar to contribute. Um, So I think that's um, really important. So I'm just going to quickly discuss two terms that may come up if you ever were to discuss this further or do your own research on it. Um, That is climate justice and environmental racism. So um, a good example, which is not a good example, (laughs) a bad thing, um, example of this is how climate disasters significantly affect those of lower income and people of color more than any other group in the world. So higher rates of pollution, disaster, and accessibility, opportunity to invest always happen in specific areas where you have lower socioeconomic status. And the effects of climate change, um, like I said, significantly and disproportionately affect these vulnerable groups, such as those experiencing homelessness, um, like I said, lower socioeconomic status, um, and they're less able to deal with extreme heat, cold, drought, flooding, any other type of disaster. Um, Despite some efforts to incorporate justice and climate adaptation and mitigation processes, there are many deficiencies that actually perpetuate these inequities for vulnerable groups. So climate justice in itself is an umbrella term. It refers to the effects of climate change on these groups and how it affects these groups. The practice of climate justice looks beyond climate change as more than an environmental problem, um, but an ethical, political problem and how we can move beyond uh, just seeing the environment and um, 
human rights and social justice as separate, but they're actually inherently linked. So that that's just like my key terms that I think are super important to know if it, you ever were to look further or just to understand this further. And I think we're in an age where, um, like I said, although we are spreading the word and making a difference in that sort, um, we're also doing a lot of performative activism. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to look for further than the buzzwords on things. And yeah, Kendra, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to you may be bringing up a really good point is to mm-hmm. look out for those things, but also like to also take note that a lot of environmental research did not include those things. And right. so like when you're looking through stuff, like be critical. And like now that you know these terms, because Danielle explained them really well, and now that you're aware that like this is something you need to be looking out for, and these are connections that really need to be made, need to be acknowledged. Um, that when you're doing your own investigating or when you're doing your own background research is be very critical of, you know, the reports that you're reading and like who wrote them and who who is paying for them and did they take these things into consideration? And if not, like, then you need to really take what they're saying with a grain of salt because it's not reflective of the entire picture. I'm so happy you said that. That's like so spot on <laughs> because it's hard to see and read environmental information or like even even taking part in certain advocacy with it and signing certain petitions because it's like why is everyone in this movement of a certain race class like why why is it like this like why are we gatekeeping why are we preventing certain groups from taking part in this and including them in our in our activism right it, it, that's mm-hmm. that's the biggest issue i think i have with it I think we talked about it a little bit before and like in our own discussions, but also just how environmentalism, like the actual movement itself is a privilege. Like people have to be able to check off all of their other boxes of survival before they can take the time to then think about bettering the environment and sustainability. Like you have to make sure that you have a roof over your head, you have food to eat, your family is taken care of, you feel safe, you whatever other necessities that come in life for you, there's like that one hierarchy of needs, you know, um, spirituality, all of that other stuff. Um, and if you have those boxes checked, then oftentimes people have time to worry about environmentalism and sustainability. Uh, then also including the economic barriers that you're talking about as uh, just everything else. It is a privilege to be able to do this kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. You're exactly right. It absolutely right. is. Yeah. That was said that is, beautifully. Yeah. That oh, was- thank you. because you're the the word of survival is so spot on because if you're worrying about surviving that's always going to come first and Mm -hmm. I think privilege again can be seen as a buzzword but it fits so perfectly in what you said and what I was trying to explain I think that like fits well and like, for example, like when we criticize, we, we don't ever think about survival, right? Like we don't, we, we, mo- we had this whole thing, we need to stop using straws. I agree. I understand where this movement is coming from. But the criticism, that in itself is ableist, right? Like we, we don't know why certain people may need to use a plastic straw or why they don't have access to other types of straws. Uh, like when we see people not buying for su- sustainable resources, how do we know what they're what they have available to them and i i think there's so many issues in the criticism of not taking part but we don't see further like you said yeah but i just wanted to end off by saying um giving you guys a resource because i know i talked about climate justice and environmental racism 
and um, kind of doing your own research and going further in that. If you would like to like a really good one, a New York Times journalist, uh, I don't want to butcher the name of this writer. If you Google read up on the links between racism and the environment, there are so many great um, big ideas um, for like beginners in the topic that will just make you again more aware, which was my end goal of this. Like, I feel like if we can stop perpetuating it, it would be just by having some more information on it. And like Kendra said, um, although individualism through change is a little bit difficult we can make change so um Mm -hmm. i think if we just know a little bit more that would be helpful so that's that's all me (laughs) i think it's great because like change it will happen we can see it in the passion for everyone growing up now that they we want to make change and hold anyone accountable for wrongdoings either accidental or not so i think i think it will happen it just takes a little bit more oomph behind the movement but hello everybody oomph (laughs) but (laughs) it's true all right hello everybody i'm so excited to now talk to you guys about um something i think is pretty interesting i'm gonna be breaking down always looks at me like during headlights whenever i talk about it (laughs) so i wanted to just bring down some of the foundational type knowledge that i thought was really important to stepping into this, I want to go over the waste hierarchy. So we may have seen it um, in a lesson plan or in high school throughout the years. Um, it's like basically a little triangle. So it has like, the different steps from like best to worst options. So the first option is the reduce. So this is the preferred method as it prevents the generation of waste in the first place. Uh, with manufacturing, it decreases materials and energy used within the manufacturing and distribution process. From the consumer front, if we purchase less items and purchase items with less packaging, we avoid disposable products. So a con, though, about this is the light weighting, which is minimal packaging, because even though something has less packaging, if you don't actually reduce the amount you're consuming, it's still going to pile up and there's still going to be tons and tons of waste. That was a pun on tons of waste and also tons the weight measurement. <laughs> I like that. I'm sorry. I love um, it. I love it. I know that you shouldn't explain the joke, and if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny, but I thought that was hilarious. Anyways, the second step is reuse. So this is a tough one. It's tough to convert everything over, especially food packaging. How do you reuse that if... You can reuse a Ziploc bag, but even after times, those are going to rip a rip. Also, repairing items. Uh, again, even selling them and donating it's a great option for reusing items. Uh, and that also, if you make a more reusable product, you're making a more durable product, which you actually have more value in it. So the third step is recycling, which is buzzword. I've brought it up a bunch of times today. Uh, it's the current focus of where everyone... I'm not going to say everyone, but the, it can be assumed that this is like the way to solve waste. We recycle, we bring the material back, and we use it a certain number of times. It's a benefit because it saves energy and natural resources and landfill space, which is really um, important. And it reduces pollution, creates jobs, it's useful products. It's great for those. But it requires collection, processing, remanufacturing, and purchasing of those end materials at the, uh, at the end of life stage. Um, fun fact, <laughs> the EPA, so they <laughs> estimate that 75% of our waste is recyclable. No. 
So, yeah. So then my question is to anyone, are we actually collecting and recycling 75% of our waste? Um, The answer is no. The answer is no, (laughs) (laughs) Um, unfortunately. So, yeah, let's let's, let's marinate that little thought. Um, Then the the next steps to finalize. Sorry? That's upsetting. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel Mm. like I just took a blow, like, to the gut. Yeah, it's not fun. It's it's helpful because that's exciting that 75% is. Is possible. Could yes, be. I agree. Yeah. I see the good and the bad in that mm-hmm. statement. I, I but, that. but then, not to be that one, but then I'm like, how many years of 75% was not? Was ooh, I don't know. know. Yeah. That's yeah. just, and ooh, we, what, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Because these are <laughs> notes that I took from a lecture. So I don't actually know. But I can look into that at a later date. But um, oh, man. But then to finish off the waste hierarchy, the last one is recovery and then landfill and incineration. And landfills, mm-hmm. we don't really want to go to landfill. And incineration is bad because uh, just to bring on all the topics we were talking about, extremely high emissions uh, in incineration. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Why do we focus so heavily on recycling? It's essentially because uh, you're able to create new materials uh, similar to the virgin state, so the original state of the whatever material you are recycling. And so the trouble is that the recyclability of a material depends on its ability to reacquire the properties it once had. So for instance, I'm going to look at paper and aluminum. I think those are two really cool examples at explaining how to see its material ability to go back to that state and also the economic value in these materials. So with aluminum, there are a lot of physical character characteristics with it that allow it to be used in a bunch of different states uh, and it's able to be recycled an infinite number of times. Usually we see a recycle, a remanufactured story into cans. So that's the reason why it has such a high economic because people want it to make it and to collect it because they don't, they know that they can it will go back to that virgin state and still be mm-hmm. safe and still protect the product inside the packaging. So it's great. Uh, but the only con, if you will, about it being so economically valuable is that not a lot of it will end up in the blue box. Because if you ever notice um, on recycling days, people will go by on bikes, carts, what have you, or even cars if they're just driving by, and they'll take the aluminum, they'll take the cans, because they know that if they bring those to a depot, like a recycling depot, Mm. they can get a decent profit back, and they can make a few dollars. But it's not great, because then our recycling feed isn't as stocked as it could be with the aluminum. Another example is the paper example I want to talk about. So... According to the Paper Packaging Canada group, the majority of Canadians can now recycle paper products, which is great because paper products are used in a bunch of different ways uh, in every product we kind of deal with daily or weekly, I would say. Um, So the ability to recycle all types of papers, paper products have enabled Canadians to manufacture boxes made from 100% recycled content. So that's great. Because it means yeah, that, that is great. Yeah, because it means that we have this ability. Um, as long as you are able to recycle that, your city has the infrastructure to do it. And then the boxes mm-hmm. are s- holding up the same strength and protection as like the virgin material would be. So that's really exciting mm-hmm. because paper, um, like sheet paper, and what we were learning in undergrad is that it can only be recycled and remanufactured seven times. 
before the paper oh. is just the material is just uh discolored way too discolored that people wouldn't want they want that pristine white like printer paper you know for mm-hmm. this example mm. and uh because if you ever notice, like, newspaper has that different tint. So the recycled mm-hmm. paper also has, like, a different tint over time. And then um, paper has different pa- uh, grains. So they have a long grain and a short grain. And when that gets all mixed up and put back into the batch, it's the grains are going to get smaller and smaller. And the paper is going to get weaker. So it'll just rip easier. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not good after the seven times. So aluminum can be recycled infinitely. Paper, life, seven times. So that's where the problem with recycling huh. is. But lastly, on this example, the PPEC states that in 2015, the national recovery of old corrugated boxes for recycling was an estimated 85%. And one blue box program reached 98%. That's great. That's a celebratory. Yay. However, okay, uh, most still ends up in the landfill, which is the last step in the waste management hierarchy. So why is this happening? Why, if we're yeah, putting so much emphasis, <laughs> emphasis on recycling, why is it all ending up in the landfill? So it's unfortunate because I bring up these examples because it's not facts that people really know about these like these two material examples. Um, and these materials are used in the majority of our packages that we interact with daily and of course plastic so pet is also used but that's a whole different um fun conversation that we can have uh later because i don't want to go i don't want to overbear with facts but i want to talk about stewardship ontario they created a really really pretty slide deck that illustrates the history of this pro uh, the blue box program so i took some few facts that i thought when i was reading it should be known because we don't talk about this and no one knows that Ontario is the birthplace of the blue box. So in 1981, Kitchener was the city to bring curbside recycling to life. Not only was Kitchener the birthplace of it, but over the 1960s and 70s, uh, Ontario University students, I believe it was the uh, University of Toronto students, really pushed the way forward for innovation. This time was also used to establish end markets for recycled materials. So specifically, different groups such as the Recycling Council of Ontario really emerged and like pushed through with this. So then in 1994, 94% of Ontario households had access to recycling programs. So you can see there's like a lot of movement and improvement for having... 94. Yeah, that's not... That's big. That's only a few years before us. Oh, sorry, I'm at 94%. <laughs> oh! <laughs> but sorry, even... Guys. Yeah, but yeah, but even still... So, um, anyways, industries are supporting of this program. So, I want to just highlight a few industries. Uh, the Canadian Newspaper Association, the Recycling Council of Ontario, as I mentioned, and then the Corporations in Support of Recycling, which includes the Canadian Soft Drink Association, Food and Consumer Products Manufacturers of Canada. So now, fast forward to 2011, the blue box reaches 95% of the 13 million people living in Ontario. So 75% of those Ontario residents say they consider the blue box their primary environmental effort. So that's great because they feel like they're helping and they're doing their uh, duty, if you will, in helping to make sure that materials are collected and sent back and not just put to landfill. Um, the new era of recycling, as I just mentioned, like uh, briefly mentioned, it's changed a lot from uh, the newspaper days. 
like the physical newspaper days, I'll say that. Um, so there's more emphasis on plastics. So increase in diversion with light mary light weighting materials has increased, uh, but it also to make less materials end up in landfill, but it's still challenging because even though as like you have less material in like a single product, you still have the same amount of products being purchased and therefore like you still have a lot of waste in those materials. So to simplify that, Canada only recycles nine percent of its plastics. Nine? Mm-hmm. That's pathetic. Yeah. yeah. So that was um, that is <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We were doing so well. I know, I had so many fun facts and now they're just sad <laughs> facts. So it's okay, it's okay. But it's we'll be fine. We're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. But so this uh stat was published in a twenty sixteen report that was uh, published by Deloitte for the Environment and Climate Change Canada. So they stated that even with all the recycling programs in place for residents, three point two million metric tons of plastic ended up as garbage. Yikes. Uh, breaking down this further, 86% landed in landfill, and 4% went to incinerations. And to top it all off, the cherry on top of the cake of this fact, uh, 1%, so 29,000 metric tons, ended up as litter, oops, litter, containing lakes and oceans. Oh my god. Yes. So there is definitely work to be done. So that's terrifying that one percent is twenty nine thousand metric tons one mm-hmm. percent so i so four percent uh-huh. incinerating is <laughs> massive mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. oh i'm really it's oh no my palms are sweating <laughs> uh oh, yeah. knees weak <laughs> but here's i have some uplifting i give you fun yeah, facts let's get to the uplifting stuff then. i'm getting there i'm getting there <laughs> I just want it. It just takes time. For real. End it. No. Oh my God. It's, I just want to tell the story. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm telling it the best way I can. But so. You're a great storyteller. Thank you. You really are. Okay. So the new proposed plan in Ontario is to essentially standardize the blue box. So the government of Ontario says this is to make it easier for Ontarians to understand what is and is not recyclable. So this plan is underway, and according to the Environmental Defense, the changes should be announced in 2023. We should definitely all be staying on top of that because it was my understanding that there were supposed to be some announcements this summer and that there's been some bumps in the road with that. Uh, but there has been a growing emphasis to bring extended producer responsibility to a maximum, uh, meaning that all producers of the materials collected in the blue box to are going to be the ones responsible for funding the program and the reason why we want to switch to the epr is for a few reasons but the one is that there's challenge is a challenge from the financial toll of funding this program uh right now it's like a mixture of taxpayers and the producers but the goal of putting it on all on the producers is, is like an incentive. Like, hey, your product is going to end up in this blue box. Therefore, you're responsible because it is yours. So you have to fund the program that's going to take it, collect it, recycle it, reuse it, what have you. And it's no, it should not be the taxpayers. I have different thoughts. I'll get into this later because <laughs> that's a really big topic <laughs> to break down. But... I mean, regardless, the whole reason why there's uh, it's tough to fund is because there's 
the diversion rates are not high enough to justify it, I guess. And since all the materials are, the majority of materials are still ending up in landfills. So taxpayers don't want to pay for the program that's not working. So with all this said, there's some things to consider. Will this new blue box plan make recycling less complicated and more efficient if we standardize? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Because there's different, there's different like people in state, uh, there's different items to think about and there's different people involved that these materials people might think are recyclable, but then um, say like a can, like we already have, mm-hmm. like, so if a can, if a soda can is recycled, they're going to assume that, say, a beer can can be recycled. But the beer store already has their very well-established bring-back program. So is that going like, to gonna hurt or help? And so I'm curious to see how that's going to play out um, with this new plan. But we'll see. So the la- And also, why did Canada go from being such a great leader uh, with recycling to being one of the high-risk countries with an escalating waste crisis? So the current cost of the Blue Box program in Ontario is $400 billion and only has a reported diversion rate of 47.7%. Why are we unable to capture these materials? Is it a lack of end market, a lack of opportunity, a lack of incentive, a lack of actual recycling infrastructure? Like these are things we all have to consider, especially especially when waste is a $2 billion resource in Ontario. So how do we educate an entire population with different habits and perceptions on environmental impacts to make a change? Also, everything I touched upon today focused mainly on residential areas and residential habits. Um, I will be talking about the industrial and commercial sector, so the IC and I sectors, in a later episode to discuss this. I just want to talk about what the assumptions we may have currently and how it's more complicated than it really seems, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg. So I hope that that was enjoyable, that it was a digestible talk- topic, and that we enjoyed it for as much as we can enjoy. Oh, absolutely. I would love I would love a whole section on mm-hmm. how to properly recycle <laughs> by Taylor. I'll bring it. Just like, yep. A spotlight rinse. show. What do we do? I'll do it. Yeah, seriously, because I also feel like people not knowing yep. what to do deters people, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to rinse it. I don't know if I'm supposed to... It doesn't matter. I'm just going to throw it. It will all end up here anyway. No, totally. Right. Yeah. I've heard that In argument. Same place. Anyways, sure. yeah. That. Right. I deter, <laughs> but I would love a section on that one time. Just right. throwing it out there while it's open. One day, for sure. All right. Well, that was kind of some heavy topics, and I know it might be a little bit gloomy to listen to as a very first intro episode, but I promise there is more positivity to come. We hope you guys all learned something. Uh, Feel free to leave comments or slide into our DMs if you have any questions or any ideas on topics you want us to discuss in the future. Now this is Green and Gritty signing out. Bye. 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 Bye.